Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew Auto Know. I disappeared there for a little bit, sorry about that. The end of the year and my 14th Birthright Israel trip slowed me up the last couple of months, but I'm back. And we are coming to the end of this season on the history of Zionism. Rapidly approaching the creation of Israel in 1948, there is still a lot that can go wrong and much struggle remains. A few more episodes left, and today's marks what we might call the beginning of the end of the beginning, if that makes any sense. In 1947, a British government official explained to his Jewish counterpart how, at this stage, a Jewish state would never happen. Not only do you need a two-thirds vote in the UN, he said, but the only way to get that would be for the United States and the Soviet Union to agree on the same game plan, which is ridiculous. Nothing like that ever happened, he said. It cannot possibly happen, and will never happen. Boy, was he wrong. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Over the past few years, I've helped host a couple of Birthright Israel fundraisers in the penthouse suite of San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel. Very swanky. I like to remind the people who attend that in that very same living room, the United Nations was created in 1945 to help solve the world's smaller conflicts. I say smaller because a bigger one was brewing. The Cold War between the American and Soviet superpowers. In the competition between democracy and communism, former Western colonies around the world found themselves as proxy enemies for the two sides to wage war. Yet for a very brief window of time in 1947, this one time only, the two giants would actually find alignment in the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. After the Jewish campaign of terrorism against the British mandate that I talked about the last few episodes, the British finally gave up on their Palestinian quagmire in 1947. They turned the whole problem over to the United Nations to figure out what to do with Palestine. The UN now faced the same dilemma that had plagued the British for 30 years. The Jews were an unstoppable force, determined to renew the Jewish state and ensure unlimited immigration. And the Arabs were an immovable object, rejecting completely anything of the sort. And so the question was, what would be an equitable solution for Palestine? Or to put the question a little bit differently and more deeply, what would be a just solution for Palestine? In the competing interests of Jews and Arabs, what solution provides the greatest possible justice while minimizing the amount of injustice to either side? That, I think, is the compelling question about partition. Partition of Palestine and seven months of deliberation by the United Nations and 2,000 years of political homelessness for the Jews. Tense vote on this way of settling immemorial strife between Jews and Arabs of the Holy Land is preceded by bitter debate. So in 1947, the United Nations was considering this partition plan for Palestine, dividing up the territory between a Jewish state and an Arab state. How we got to that point is a subject that I wrote a whole episode on but tabled in the eternal struggle to make Jew I don't know what you really ought to know. 
I couldn't tell if the backstory here was really essential or if I was just indulging my Israel nerdiness to the ennui of my audience. Long story short, after the war, the United States and Great Britain formed a committee to explore the situation in Palestine and make recommendations about what to do. Partition had been raised as an idea back during the Arab Revolt of the late 1930s. Since no one could figure out a better idea, and since Britain was totally unwilling to be helpful anymore, especially in allowing any more Jewish immigration, several diplomats, investigations, debates, and investigatory committees later, the UN decided to consider partition. So what does partition mean exactly? Like, on a map. Hang tight, I'll hit you with that in about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit longer. Now, I think there are a couple different ways to look at the big picture here. One way is the global post-war political situation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the conflict between Jews and Palestinians has, as its central players, the Jews and the Palestinians. They're the small fish. The big fish is the entire Middle East. No one wanted to piss off the Arabs, since they controlled the oil that everyone's economy depended on. Violent unrest and instability in the Middle East was as big a problem back then as it is today. The American State Department, staffed with both geopolitical realists and anti-Semitic buffoons, lobbied hard against creating a Jewish state, as did the oil companies. The CIA predicted that the Jews would hold out not longer than two years at the most against the Arab armies. So there was also the concern that if the United States supported partition, it would be backing the wrong horse. As for Britain, they were losing their empire all over the world. In the Middle East, they had lost Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. In 1947, they were walking away from India and what became Pakistan. Plus, winning the Second World War had led to economic ruin. They didn't want to anger the Arabs and lose the oil. They didn't want to lose their influence in the Middle East. And they didn't want to give the Jews anything whatsoever. The Irgun's campaign of terrorism left bitterness and resentment that will only get worse once Israel's war of independence begins. And so the British threw up every roadblock they could against Jewish statehood. The main one being a seemingly trivial requirement for the partition plan. That any result be acceptable to both the Jews and the Arabs. But as we know, and so do the British, nothing that favored the Jews would ever be acceptable to the Arabs. Britain was counting on it. But if the geopolitical reality seemed to argue against partition in a Jewish state, the Zionists had a key champion who emerged just in time. And that brings me to the second way to look at the big picture of the partition plan. In April of 1945, while sitting for a portrait, President Franklin Roosevelt suddenly keeled over and died. At best, we can say he was ambivalent about Zionism, fairly indifferent towards the Jews, and he didn't leave us with a clear sense of where he stood on the question of a Jewish state in Palestine. But the new president was Harry Truman, and Harry Truman was very much a supporter of Zionism. He grew up amongst the Jewish community in Independence, Missouri, and had several close Jewish friends. Since well before he became president, he expressed his sense that the world acted callously towards Jewish suffering, and that the hundreds of thousands of Jews stranded in refugee camps were a humanitarian crisis deserving of sympathy and action. And that is the second way of looking at the partition plan. As my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, told one of the investigating committees, the question wasn't whether Zionism was morally right or wrong. The question was one of justice and injustice. 
both in considering the full sweep of Jewish history in Europe as well as the plight of the Holocaust refugees. It was this idea that for Harry Truman overrode the risk of angering the Arabs. Now, his reasoning wasn't entirely humanitarian, he was a politician after all, Truman was looking to secure 5 million Jewish votes for the upcoming 1948 presidential election. He faced unrelenting pressure from American and Palestinian Zionists to support the creation of a Jewish state. They drove him nuts. Diary entries unearthed in the last couple of decades found a few times during these years when Truman expressed a great deal of anger towards the Jews as a group. He privately complained that the Jews were selfish. During the Exodus episode, he grumbled about having to deal with it claiming that the Jews had no sense of proportion or any judgment when it comes to world affairs. It's totally fair to question whether Truman would have supported partition if it was being considered not before the 1948 presidential election, but afterwards. I think most mainstream historians would argue that he probably wouldn't have, and Israel never would have happened. Still, whatever his occasional private misgivings about the Jews, he committed the U.S. government towards the cause of the Jewish state. He picked diplomatic fights with the British, lobbying their government to allow 100,000 Holocaust refugees to immigrate to Palestine as a just and humanitarian response to their plight. Britain refused. The Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, said that if the Jews, with all their suffering, want to get too much at the head of the queue, you have the danger of another anti-Semitic reaction through it all. Truman, to his credit, didn't really appreciate that answer. And in this, the United States had a surprising ally, their nemesis, the Soviet Union. Where Hitler has gone down in history as the worst anti-Semite of all time, Joseph Stalin can't be too far behind. He hated the Jews, murderously, before the 1940s and then again afterwards. But for a quick second in 1947, he put aside his raging anti-Semitism and saw the strategic advantage of supporting the creation of a Jewish state. Why? Socialism. Between the kibbutz and the labor union and the lefty intellectual underpinnings of Zionism and the fact that its leaders and most of its people came from Eastern Europe, Stalin was banking on the future Jewish state becoming a socialist state in the Soviet Union's orbit. Plus, the Jews were looking to drop serious money on buying weapons to defend themselves against the coming war with the Arabs. Plus, backing the partition plan would weaken Britain's influence in the Middle East. A major plus. And so just as the West and the Soviets were pulling the Iron Curtain between them, they came together as the UN considered partition ensuring that the plan would have the support of the United States' Western allies, as well as the Communist bloc. And this was big. But not yet assured of success, because we are still dealing with the question of justice and injustice. I think we can say that the Arabs had a fair point in all this. One of the founding principles of the United Nations speaks to the right of self-determination. When it comes to unraveling territories from their colonialist empires and transitioning them to an independent state, the principal formula, generally speaking, was that the local majority population ought to rule with established protections for minorities. In Palestine, the Arabs were a clear majority, and they expected the world to grant them their state in accordance with the UN principles. But that didn't happen for them because of two reasons, one of which was their fault, and one of which wasn't. 
The way that it wasn't their fault was that in the question of justice and injustice, the world's sympathy was with the Jews. The Zionist movement had been laying the groundwork for a Jewish homeland in Palestine for decades now, and still held fast to Britain's Balfour Declaration of 1917, which committed Britain to establishing a Jewish homeland. And of course, you had the Holocaust. The sense of guilt and the determination to bring some measure of justice to the hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors languishing in the refugee camps led most of Europe and other nations around the world to lean towards creating a Jewish state. But also, the Arabs' response to partition was the same as their response to nearly every other development in Palestine. And this was their fault. Violence, and the threat of violence. Our Jew, I don't know, chief Badi, Amin al-Husseini, was back in the picture after having spent World War II in the warm embrace of Adolf Hitler. He made it clear that the Arabs would fight partition until the Jews were annihilated. The head of the Arab League promised a war of elimination with massacres that would compare to those of the Mongols and the Crusades. But Arab threats went beyond that. Even moderate Arab leaders were compelled to issue dire warnings against the Jewish minorities in their territories in order to appease the hardliners. Jewish communities in every corner of the Middle East were put on notice that they could expect pogroms if a Jewish state were approved. And so the historian Howard Sacker notes that all these threats ironically made an even stronger case for establishing a Jewish state, as clearly it wasn't safe to leave Jews to fend for themselves in Arab countries. In threatening violence, the Arabs scored a crucial own goal against their aspirations. And so when we consider partition, we are looking at this question of justice and injustice. How to measure an equitable outcome between the Holocaust refugees and Arab self-determination as well as the bigger historical narrative of both Arabs and Jews that brought us to this moment. And that brings us to the deets on the UN's partition plan. You will achieve your mission successfully. Then you will restore freedom to Palestine, give justice to the Jewish people, and stability, progress, and prosperity to the Middle East. These three objectives can be accomplished by the immediate abolition of the white paper, the establishment of a Jewish state, and the promotion of Jewish-Arab alliance. Okay, the audio isn't great. It's an old newsreel. But that is David Ben-Gurion. He is saying that the UN will achieve its mission and restore freedom to Palestine if justice to the Jewish people is joined with stability, progress, and prosperity throughout the Middle East. This can be accomplished, he said, by abolishing the White Paper of 1939 and establishing a Jewish state with a Jewish-Arab alliance. So in the fall of 1947, the United Nations set about considering a map of partition. It's one of the most famous maps of Israeli history, and it's hard to explain without a visual reference, so you should totally Google it while you're listening to this. Map, Palestine, partition, we'll get you there. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, you can look at the map from the perspective of geopolitics and also from the perspective of whether we should consider it just or unjust. The answer being, wherever your particular sympathies lie. But let's just say that if you're Jewish, the map, and the partition plan generally, had a lot to not recommend it. The Jews got more land than the Arabs, but the majority of it was the Negev Desert. Vast, empty, hot, mostly useless, the Jews received a narrow strip along the Mediterranean coast, so thin as to be easily cut off in a pincer move between the Arab armies of Jordan and Egypt. Same story up north, 
where although the Jews received choice agricultural land, it would be easily overwhelmed by the armies of Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Jerusalem was to be maintained as an international zone and not under Jewish or Arab control. But don't make the mistake that everyone else makes of thinking that this was just about the geography. Because just as precarious as the assignment of land for the Zionists was the composition of the two nations' populations. The Arab state would have 800,000 Arabs and only 10,000 Jews. The Jewish state would have 540,000 Jews but 400,000 Arabs. So this posed a problem. It wouldn't be long before the Arab population would overtake the Jewish one, making the Jews the minority and bringing to an end the Jewish character, and maybe even the Jewish population, of the new Jewish state. At the same time, partition wasn't intended to permanently separate Arabs and Jews. The point was to give each of them an independent state to manage their own affairs amongst themselves, but then for the two states, and the two people, to live harmoniously together. The plan was for a joint economy. They were to share a currency, transportation, postal services, communication services. Exports and other revenue were to be placed in a kind of joint account, with a portion going to the internationalized Jerusalem and the rest divided equally. The Jewish state would pay several million dollars a year to the Arab one to compensate for the Jewish state getting better agricultural land. And the Arabs, while they wouldn't get all of Palestine, would get part of it. And let's remember, they had most of the rest of the Middle East too. So the partition plan was distinctly disadvantageous for the Jews. Menachem Begin and his revisionist Zionists did not accept the plan. But David Ben-Gurion accepted it. It was a Jewish state, however imperfect. things happened in New York City on the evening of November 29, 1947. In Manhattan's East Village, down around Avenue A, two Holocaust survivors from Poland were married. They had separately survived the horrors of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the Warsaw Ghetto, the railroad cars, the death marches, and slave labor. The groom had lost his entire family, including seven siblings. And out on Long Island, at the UN's headquarters at Lake Success, the United Nations fulfilled Theodore Herzl's dream by voting in favor of Resolution 181 to create a Jewish and an Arab state in Palestine. The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. The three-minute-long, two-thirds vote that the British official at the beginning of this podcast insisted would never happen did. 33 countries in favor, 10 against, and 13 abstentions. It was unbelievable. In Jerusalem, the head of the Jewish agency's political department, Golda Meirson, who we know as Golda Meir, addressed the excited crowds who had gathered to hear the vote broadcast live. We had faith that this moment would come, she said, and when it did come, it was so great, it is beyond our powers to express. Also in Jerusalem that night, an eight-year-old boy lay in bed waiting for his father to come home. Covered in sweat from celebrating the vote, his father crawled into bed and told him of the harsh life of violence and shame he had experienced back in Eastern Europe. The boy remembered, as an adult, that still in a voice of darkness, with his head still losing its way in my hair, my father told me under my blanket, 
Bullies may well bother you in the street or at school someday. They may do it precisely because you are a bit like me. But from now on, from the moment we have our own state, you will never be bullied just because you are a Jew. Not that. Never again. From tonight, that's finished here. Forever. That eight-year-old boy, experiencing the kind of seminal moment that informs a lifetime, would grow up to become Israel's most famous writer and the intellectual leader of the left-wing peace movement. His name was Amos Oz. He died just a few weeks ago. That a wedding of Holocaust survivors and the UN vote for partition occurred on the same evening is perhaps just an historic coincidence but it highlights the profound and powerful belief in renewal and redemption that Jews around the world attached to the creation of Israel. For many, it was a sign of God's favor after the nihilism of the Holocaust, a divine reward for the unimaginable sacrifice forced upon the Jewish people. For others, it was the culmination of decades of struggle to carve a place in this world where a Jew could be a Jew without fear or persecution. For most Jews, it was a combination of both those ideas. As a wedding marks a new chapter in the life of a family, so too was this new Jewish state intended to mark a turning point in the history of the Jews. Like a wedding, it would bring Jews around the world together to bind them to this new great historic project. That both the wedding and the new state should be made up of Holocaust survivors makes that symbolism doubly so. And especially so for this Jew I Don't Know podcast. Without that UN vote that night, this podcast would never have happened. But even more than that, the two survivors married that night were my grandparents. To be in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem that night, well, that is one party I am sorry I missed. But it was tempered with the knowledge the Jews were now in for serious trouble. Menachem Begin warned that partition meant war, not peace with the Arabs. Ben-Gurion knew they were looking at a fight not just for a Jewish state, but for Jewish existence. As Chaim Weitzman warned, the state will not be given to the Jewish people on a silver platter. Boy was he right. That's next time. Lehithrot. See you later.